You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Welcome to the History of the Netherlands, where we explore the events and characters that, over time, have transformed a swamp into an amazing modern marvel. Episode 12. Jews, Pestilence, and the Apocalyptic 14th Century. At this stage in our journey through the history of the Netherlands, we have emerged into the 1300s, a century which, for a long time, has been seen as the most awful century to have been alive in Western Europe. This was a period of immense instability, where warfare and plague led to an almost complete breakdown of order in the social fabric. Estimates vary and depend on the region, but in less than a decade, up to half of the European population died of the Black Death after it first struck in 1348, before returning again later in the century and wiping out another huge chunk. If you were one of the few who survived, this would have been like literally living through the apocalypse. Even if you were the best Christian in the world and felt sure that your place in the eternal kingdom of heaven was assured, there was no guarantee that you would not wake up one day vomiting blood and covered in extremely painful and pus-filled lumps in your groin. And as bad as all that may be, it would have been even worse if you were a Jew. Because even though you had to live through the same hardships as everyone else, and you were exposed to the same pestilence that could destroy everybody you know, there was a high chance that you were also going to be blamed for the Black Death, and subsequently burned to death as punishment. So, in today's episode, we're going to focus on the life and religion of people living in the 1300s, and also on the early Jewish lowlanders, and the extremely unfortunate position they found themselves in during these times, especially following the onset of the Apocalypse. Society in the lowlands in the 14th century was made up of a lot of different people, there were rural folk and town folk, upper class and working class, etc. However, there was also a homogeneity to the society that came as a result of the obligation of religion. This was an extremely Christian society wherein the spiritual domination of the church 
transcended class and geographical differences. Whether you were a leek farmer in Zeeland, a town alderman in Mekela, a dike builder in Holland, a manorial lord in Limburg, a fiercely independent Frisian, a traveling merchant from Nijmegen, a fuller in Ghent, or the Duke of Gelders, you were almost certainly a Christian. Monasteries, abbeys, cloisters, great cathedrals, and more modest churches all abounded in the lowlands, as in all of Western Europe, in the 1300s. There were also plenty of monks, nuns, and priests whose days required commitment indeed. They spent at least a third of the day in prayer, and much of the rest doing things like copying down texts, as well as cleaning, tending to higher-ups, producing food, and manufacturing whatever it was that their monastery made. Actually, unless you really wanted to be a monk, it would have been miserable being a monk. Penance was a big thing, and common people would have gone to church at least once a week, and then also on the multitudinous saints' days that were celebrated throughout the seasons. The mentality was that God was responsible for everything, and he both preempted and behaved in reaction to the sins of humans. In times of greater trouble, strife, and stress, people would have turned to the clergy and the church as somewhere where the solutions to their problems most likely lay. They asked them to tell them why God was throwing a temper tantrum at them and how they could fix it. Furthermore, a lot of tax collection was done by the church, whether on behalf of the church itself or in proxy of whatever temporal ruler was due the taxes. So, Great abbeys also often played administrative roles for this medieval society, where documents and records of such were kept. Such was the dominance of Christianity, that its representative body, the church, was well and truly immersed, not only in the spiritual world, but very much in the physical one. Even though you could be burned for it, there was certainly dissension in ideas of Christianity, and people existed in the 1300s who could rightly have been called reformers. That heresy was a thing defined and punished by the church shows that people did exist who went against the authority of the church. Therefore, there was never complete compliance with what the church demanded. Discussions and debates amongst each class of society would have existed then as it does now. And there were people who acted on their beliefs, even if it went against the church. Around the late 1200s, Groups such as Beguines and Beghards had emerged, and these were communities of commoners who lived with the chasteness of monks and nuns, but who did not do so under oath. They were not tied to the church establishment, but to what they felt were the foundational ideas of Christianity, such as caring for the poor and the meek, and not being a douchebag. There was freedom in belonging to one of these groups that Members of the official clergy did not have. The members of the Beghards and the Beguines could leave at any time. They could choose to go and get married or just move to another town. The church did not like this kind of independence from its authorities and, importantly, from its coffers. Therefore, many Beguines and Beghards were burned simply for living like that, especially in France. Many sought solace in any place that was not France, and there were great movements of these people to the north, particularly into the lowlands. This is why towns like Bruges and Amsterdam to this day still have what are called beguinages. 
Early on, lowlander towns were way more tolerant to the independent-mindedness of these alternative Christians and allowed Beguines to settle and establish sanctuaries for themselves within city bounds. And these sanctuaries are those Beguinages. So despite the dominance of Christian thought, there were very many different types of people and people would have had a variety of thoughts about God and everything. But if you swayed too much towards contradicting the church or were too public about it, you could and likely would be burned to death as a heretic, even though you were a Christian. So what then if you weren't a Christian? There are few records of a Jewish presence in the lowlands prior to the 13th century. One of the earliest pieces of evidence that we have is a gravestone found in Tinan, Brabant, from about 1255. It has the name of a young girl on it, Rebecca. That gravestone, which was only discovered in 1872, doesn't tell us much, except that by the 1250s there was enough of a Jewish community in Tinan to have their own cemetery. The Jewish diaspora is ancient and wide, and there is little doubt that the riverways that connected the ancient Roman Empire with the lowlands must have carried Jews to this region way before the 1250s just as they carried people of many origins, but we just don't have any solid evidence of it. However, with the growth of industry and urbanization that happened in the lowlands from the 10 hundreds on, Jewish people saw opportunity just as commoners from many different regions did. From that point, there is little doubt that the fabric of medieval society in the northwestern corner of Europe included Jewish culture, as curtailed as it would become. It has been suggested that up until a certain point in towns and cities, Jews, along with other merchants, were able to get a foothold in the new urbanized societies, even able to hold public office. In a time when mercantile influence and wealth could get you far, the connections that Jewish merchants had with far-reaching places eastward, from Germany to Italy to the Levant, would have been an advantage. In the profitable exercise of bringing luxury goods from Asia to vain nobles and nouveau riche in Europe. But by the turn of the millennium, the growth of church power, from grassroots monasteries to ruling bishops, archbishops, and the Pope, would put a stop to any social inclusiveness towards Jews. Over the 1200s and into the 1300s, Jews became excluded from the growing mechanics of urban societies. The church encouraged their ostracization, Jews had, after all, been the ones responsible for killing Jesus. They were disallowed from holding public office and from owning land. They were denied entry into either the merchant or the craft guilds. And exhibiting identifiably different cultural traits from the Christian community, such as their observance of different holy days, their different fashions and different habits, such as the ritualistic cleansing in the mikvah, all set them apart from the rest of the population. Within towns and cities, and across rural areas also, Jews became identified as people completely other from the rest of the communities in which they lived. With few options for making a living due to being banned from trade and craft guilds, many Jews turned to usury. Usury is the practice of loaning money at interest. There is a famous New Testament parable of Jesus visiting Jerusalem during Passover and finding a temple that was inhabited only by money changers and lenders, 
he drives them out in fury, proclaiming that they had turned the temple into a den of thieves. This became the pretext for the Catholic Church making usury a sin, and getting very enthusiastic about enforcing it from the 12th century on. In 1179, the Third Lateran Council, at the behest of Pope Alexander III, banned usury under threat of excommunication. But Jews couldn't really be kicked out of a church that they weren't a part of to begin with. Some Italian traders, referred to as Lombards, defied the Pope and became renowned moneylenders also, primarily in Holland and Zeeland, but it was its practice by Jews that became widespread and would sink most deeply into the mindset of European history. The racist stereotype of the Jewish moneylender originates in these times. The term Jew was also not applied to a homogenous type of person. All around Europe and in the lowlands no less, many people of Jewish origin were forced to convert to Christianity, doing this by baptism. Whether those people actually reverted their faith or secretly maintained links to their heritage by practicing Jewish traditions at home in secret is entirely unknown. What they told their children about who they were, what they should believe, or whether they were different from other children is similarly lost to us, as is the extent to which non-Jews continued to condemn, ostracize, or discriminate against these new Christians. For sure, the matter of Jewish kids being brought into Christian redemption was a prominent one in the minds of the grassroots clergy. One story that comes to us from a Dominican monk called Thomas of Cantimpre, living in Lofen, Brabant, and writing in around 1260, tells of a Jewish family from Cologne arriving to live in Brabant, who had a young daughter named Rachel. The young girl befriended the nearby priest called Rainier. When Rachel's parents discovered this, they immediately intended to send her back to Cologne. However, as it is put, the Virgin Mary intervened and allowed the priest, Rainier, to save her from such a terrible fate. He had her baptized, changed her name to Catherine, and sent her off to a nunnery. So much of our documentation of this period comes from the styluses and quills of clergy like Thomas of Cantimpre. When it comes to talking about Jews, the Catholic medieval clergy is literally the most biased source possible against them, and with few exceptions, is overtly negative. This story comes down as the rescue of a poor Jewish girl into the loving arms of the church. In reality, what is more likely is that this girl was exposed to the church-sanctioned authority of this local priest, along with whatever awful whim such a man of the cloth might harbor, and when her parents found out, they sought to negate this by taking her out of the situation, sending her back to Cologne. Upon this, the young girl was then kidnapped, forcefully put through a ritual that involved having her head shoved below water, and was then sent to live in a prison-like environment for the rest of her life. We're not saying that this is the true version of the story, but it is as, and I would say even more believable, an approach than the narrative of saving a Jew, which is what the clerically inscribed historical record maintains. 
And that is incredibly important to consider when looking at the history of Jews in the lowlands at this time. It is looking at the history of a people who were and are as intrinsically linked in the historical, cultural, economic, and social developments of the medieval lowlands as every other person, but who have been written about, spoken about, thought about, and viewed as separate throughout. Even when talking about money lending, which for sure was a practice that Jews engaged in, it is too easy to neglect that Jews would have also been participant, albeit in a much smaller scale, in basically every other industry around. Just notwithstanding those severe limitations on them as regarded public governance and guild membership. There would have been Jewish smiths and shoemakers and carpenters and fabric makers. They just would have had a way harder time seeking employment and working rights than their non-Jewish peers. And as we've seen, their non-Jewish peers had a really bloody hard time of it themselves. Besides money lending, dealing in secondhand goods and medicines also became avenues of employment for Jewish people. It seems that by the 1250s, there was a growth in the Jewish communities of Brabant. This is discerned from admittedly scarce sources. The record of a rabbi, for instance, known as Ravya, who lived in Lofa. This growth of the Jewish population in Brabant eventually irked the Christian values of the Duke, Henry III, who on the 26th of February 1261 signed his will, and in it was included a clause on the Jews in his territory. Unless they ceased their practice of usury, they were to be banished from Brabant. Conveniently for him and his coffers, this was only to happen after his death. Expelling Jews is something that would have been experienced in territories and fiefdoms all around Europe, as Jews had to pay a tax for just being Jewish, and their expulsion could mean their readmittance at a higher tax rate. It was a way for rulers to make money or to expunge their own debt to people who had loaned them money. However, as we have seen, rulers in the lowlands like the Counts of Flanders or Holland or the Dukes of Brabant were at this time having to learn how their rule needed to take into account the demands of the modern urban centres that were upholding a new economic and industrial system. Jewish moneylenders and merchants had their place in this system. Their money was needed so that expelling all of them was fraught with vulnerability as it would put the functioning of this system at risk. Good business does not like too much risk. Henry III died two days after signing his will. He was succeeded by his infirm of body and mind son, Henry IV, who we met briefly last episode. Henry was underage when he became the new duke, so his mother, Aladus, acted as regent. She was intelligent enough to realize that the loss of the Jewish community would mean the loss of profit for the state made primarily from the taxes levied upon them. Thus, she did not enforce her late husband's will, and the Jews in Brabant remained, continuing to act as moneylenders. Henry IV, as we mentioned in our story about the Holland Count, Floris V, was eventually banished from ruling Brabant and was succeeded by his brother, Jan I, who would become one of Brabant's most famous dukes. He continued his mother's sensible policy, giving Lovin the right to admit Jews in 1267 and then extending the protection of Jews to within the bounds of 
all of his territories in 1292. Can you imagine though how marked with uncertainty your life would be if the fate of you and your family and your kind depended merely on the whim of whoever was in charge of the territory in which you lived? I mean, this was most certainly the case for anyone living in a feudal system, but for Jews it was always more perilous. For instance, English Jews experienced the worst of this in 1290, when Edward I, that English king with whom we should be now fairly familiar, expelled all the Jews from England. It is uncertain how Jews first arrived in the northern lowlands, but it seems to have begun around this time, and could very well be a direct consequence of this forced emigration from England. Much the same was happening in France and in the Holy Roman Empire, so there were lots of Jewish people moving around. In 1306, the French king followed the example set by the English one and also expelled all the Jews from France, but he soon had to scrap the execution of his plan due to running into financial difficulty. From the late 1200s and early 1300s, there were Jewish communities not only in Hanau and Brabant, but in Gelders, Oferaisel and Limburg. Indeed, the trade route between Cologne and Flanders is thought to have been marked by many small Jewish communities. They would have all been aware that theirs was a perpetually precarious position, always dependent on the lords of those regions. Way back in 1236, the Emperor Frederick II had qualified the legal position of Jews in his empire. Jews belonged, quote, with life and property to us and our empire, with whom we can do as we wish and as it pleases us to do. End quote. This meant exactly what it sounded like, but it also established what became known as the Judenschutz, Jewish protection, which the emperor could sell or give away to vassals beneath him. Way later then, in 1339, the emperor Louis IV gave this right to the ruler of Helders, Count Reinald. From this then, the Jews in Helders were legally his, with which to do what he wanted. Evidence of his use of this right comes from 1346 in records that show eight Jewish families as having paid tribute to Reinald, who, as an aside, had by now become a duke. Well done him. This truly was a bizarre time, though, when looked at from our modern perspectives. With the exception of Jews, there was an absolutism about the Christian outlook on the world, and the church was the establishment. In enforcing church doctrine, pressure was exerted on society at many levels. There was a constant presence of the clergy in people's everyday lives and a collective demand to attend church, to confess sins, and to take part in Christian rituals. One such ritual is the administering of the Eucharist, in which bread and wine are consumed at Mass to commemorate the Last Supper. During this process, through the workings of God and... Um, little bit of magic. magic by the priest, the bread and wine supposedly becomes the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ, despite not changing in appearance at all, in a process known as transubstantiation. Even though this was a time when many superstitious beliefs and illogical understandings of things were rife, debate still raged as to whether or not this process of transubstantiation was real. At the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215, the Church decided that, yep, 
it was real. They still, however, had to convince people of this. What they needed was a good marketing campaign. How hard could that be? All they needed was a miracle. Or even better, a whole bunch of them. Miraculous stories about sacraments doing weird things like spontaneously bleeding or avoiding calamity began to circulate throughout Europe, but also the lowlands. There was a miracle in Meersen in 1222, one near Breda in 1300, and one in Stippout in 1342. Miracles put little villages on maps. They became the focus of pilgrimages. It was a boon for the economy of any town. Countless people, for countless reasons found within the framework of their Christian perception, traveled across Europe to go and pray at the site of a miracle. One lowlander miracle that had very far-reaching consequences happened in Holland on the 16th of March, 1345, in the town of Amsterdam. This town had been slowly but steadily growing, but it was still pretty much a fishing village. On that night, an old man lay at his deathbed, and when it looked like his final hours were upon him, a priest was called for to hear his confession and to administer the Eucharist. So sick was this man, however, that he could not stomach even the wafer of Christ and proceeded to vomit it up all over himself. The good lady tending to him in his hour of need went about cleaning him up and picking up the soggy wafer, which was clearly in need of replacement, and threw it in the flames that were flickering in the fireplace behind her. She turned back to the old man, but something caught her eye, and slowly she turned back in the direction of the fireplace. There she witnessed, unburnt by the heat of the flames and levitating freely above them, the vomited up wafer, the Eucharist, the body of Christ. It was a miracle. The old man died, making this probably the most useless miracle of all time. But word quickly spread about the miraculous bread. The local council, the nobility and the bishop of Utrecht all came to give their opinion. Somebody sent word to the Pope in Avignon and he eventually sent up his Mythbusters to check it all out. Once verified, a sacred chapel was built at the location of the old man's house to which countless pilgrims began to swarm. The miracle changed the village and mainly because of pilgrimage. Within a hundred years, Amsterdam's population had trebled, putting it firmly onto the path of prosperity. Such was the intensity of Christian belief within the local populations that the marketing campaign worked. The host came to represent something so sacramental that offending it became extremely punishable. In terms of the relations between Christians and Jews, which was often a relationship between people in debt and people to whom the debt was owed, stories of sacrilege against the host began to emerge. Jews were as the common view saw it, once again killing Jesus. More than once in various locations, the Christian populations were enraged enough to erupt into large-scale violence against Jewish communities. One such story happened in 1370, when 13 Jews in Brussels supposedly stole and stabbed some of the wafers which were the body of Christ, upon which these wafers began to bleed. When this desecration was discovered, the Jews of Brussels were rounded up and burned to death. Such punishments had multiple meanings. The severity showed what happened if you went against the church. 
destroying the entire Jewish population in Brussels, showed the public that Jews were collectively complicit in this outrage and evil as a people. They were not content with killing Jesus just the one time, but would persist in doing it again and again. Also, it showed that despite having seen the host bleed, allegedly, the Jews desecrating the host did not immediately give up their own false beliefs and at that point convert to Christianity. This is telling the public that Jews by their very nature were against the true God and against the world that God ruled. In the minds of medieval Christians then, what the church was trying to instill was that Jews could never be trusted. Speaking of things which can't be trusted, here's an ad break. See you on the other side. In 1348, rumors began to sweep across Europe, originating from Italy, that God's wrath was approaching. Disaster was striking everywhere in the south, and the north would not be exempt. The year before, in 1347, 12 Genoese trading galleys bringing goods from the Crimea to Sicily in Italy had also brought with them something called Yersinius pestis, a bacteria that would become known to history as the Black Death. Originating in Central Asia, it had been carried by fleas, hitchhiking on and feeding off the backs of infected rodents who had made their way onto ships. People began to wake up with pustulant sores in their groin area or their armpits, sometimes as big as apples, and also many little black spots, probably the markings of the flea bites. Within two to seven days, these people had been wrought with fever, begun vomiting blood before ultimately succumbing to death. From Sicily to Venice, up to Central and Eastern Europe, to Spain, France, the German cities on the Rhine, and then the Lowlands, and to the British Isles, the Black Death ended up killing at least one-third and possibly more than half of the entire Western European population within five years. And nobody knew what it was or what caused it. Quite simply though, the apocalypse was here. It was the end of times. The first causes of the disease given by so-called medical experts of the time were the wrath of God, the alignment of certain planets, and the resultant creation of bad air or miasma. People were told to close themselves up and stop breathing infected air. This, strangely enough, led to a change of lifestyle as windows which had previously been open now had to remain shut and covered. This was done with thick tapestries and created an even greater demand amongst the wealthy for the famous fabrics of Flanders. The large tapestries needed the workshops of the highly skilled workers. A mere heavy window covering was not enough for the wealthy. They wanted elaborate, embroidered narratives of their favorite scenes from popular romances, which they could look at to give them a little bit of respite from their vomiting blood. Another prescribed prevention was that bathing was dangerous. It opened up the pores in one's skin and created openings to this bad air. Europe would now enter a no-bathing era, which lasted until the mid-18th century. Despite any measures suggested and taken, the disease continued and discriminated against nobody. As Norman F. Cantor wrote in In the Wake of the Plague, quote, 
rich urban people fled to country retreats and may have done better, but archbishops, great lords, and wealthy merchants also fell to the plague. It was a democratic disease. End quote. But of course, for a world mired in the staunch fear of God and dominated by the church, the greatest cause was sin. Humanity was now paying for its spiritual trespasses. God was making a statement. For the commoners who had nowhere to run, and who every day were seeing their kith and kin dropping like pustulant, blood-vomiting, and feverish flies, panic ensued. It is basically impossible to imagine how hellish the world had now become. Every day, waking with the fear of discovering those bloody pustules on yourself, or even worse, on your kids or any loved one. On a daily basis, more and more people not waking, with nobody having any idea of what to do about it. Imagine surviving this and seeing half the people around you die in such a manner. During this apocalyptic era, the grassroots clergy became virulent. People known as flagellants began to appear in towns. According to MJ Spate, quote, half-naked, wearing large hats marked with a red cross, they traveled from town to town, singing psalms, loudly confessing their sins, and lashing one another with switches and whips, doing penance in the hope that God might be persuaded to renounce his plan to destroy the world. End quote. Flagellants took aim at themselves and the sins of other Christians, but mostly they took aim at Jews. Of course, Jews were as exposed to the Black Death as every other human being, but Judaic ritualism meant a greater level of hygiene in the Middle Ages than there existed in the Christian community. They had ritualistic bathing in the mikvah, the separation of foods, and a generally higher level of cleanliness, and this would have saved many Jews from being the desired breeding ground of black death-ridden fleas. So, in towns, the percentage of Jewish victims may well have been significantly lower than Christians, which I suppose could be looked at suspiciously if you had no idea about concepts of modern-day hygiene. As the plague made its way down the Rhine Valley, and even before the first victims perished in places like Brabant, Jews began to pay a price in the southern lowlands, being blamed for the calamity that was descending upon all of them. Pogroms erupted, in which Jews were rounded up and burnt at the stake, or drowned, or simply butchered violently. A clerk in Antwerp at the time, Jan van Boendel, as well as an anonymous chronicler from later in the century, originating around Utrecht, lay the blame for these massacres at the feet of these flagellants, but also with the Duke of Brabant, Jan I, who seems to have done little to try to deter the pogroms. Albert Snavel, great name by the way, who was a chronicler from Zwolle, recorded that every Jew in the town was burned. As he put it, quote, for the love of God, end quote. Zwolle was part of an area called the Oferstedt, an area that was temporarily ruled by both the Duke of Helders and the Bishop of Utrecht. Although the Duke of Helders had looked at the Jews in his domain as his servants under his protection, his Judenschutz, neither he nor the Bishop of Utrecht seemed to have done anything either to prevent the massacres of Jewish people living in their territories. 
no documents are known to record on what happened to those in Helders. Simply that promissory notes from Jewish moneylenders suddenly afterwards were in the hands of the Duke, who of course owned the feudal right to all of the property of all the Jews following their demise. There is one source from this time that gives an explanation as to why the Dukes and the Counts may not have tried to prevent these awful situations of mob violence and anti-Semitism. Heinrich von Hereford, a Dominican monk in Germany, wrote, quote, In that year of 1349, the Jews were exterminated most cruelly. This was done either on account of their wealth, which many nobles and poor people and also their debtors were able to seize illegally, which I believe to be the truth of the matter, or because they, as the general rumor has it, maliciously poisoned the wells all over the world, which I cannot accept as the truth, end quote. So even though there was the emergence of a social narrative that Jews had caused the Black Death, which by the way was apparently done by them poisoning wells with concoctions derived from baby blood and spiders, amongst other things, evidently there was also contemporary people, clergy even, who saw the actuality that in fact getting rid of Jews was a way of getting rid of debt, as well as taking possession of their wealth and that the eruption of plague had given an external reason for this to occur. The book The History of the Jews in the Netherlands, edited by Blom, Fuchs, Mansfeld, and Schoeffer, and from which we have borrowed very heavily for this episode, also gives insight into Jewish sources from this period. Memor Buchen, a commemorative text that lists the names of Jewish communities and individuals who fell victim to calamities and violence. This was done probably first due to the brutality of the Crusades, so that those individual and collective victims murdered by Christian Crusaders could be included in songs of lamentation, or kinah. The memoir book from Deutz, a settlement across the Rhine from Cologne, lists places from the year 1349, places that had brutality and murder inflicted upon them in reaction to the Black Death. It shows us where there were known Jewish settlements prior to the outbreak, and from this we know that Jewish communities in lowlanded towns such as Echternach, Luxembourg, Brabant, Antwerp, Mekele, Brussels, Utrecht, Bruck, Nijmegen, Arnhem, Zutphen, Zwolle, Deventer, and Kempen, Kempen, by the way, believed to be the current town of Kampen in Overijssel, all these places saw their share of Jewish genocide in 1349. So yeah, it's a bit different this week, and a bit morbid, but violent anti-Semitism, bet you didn't know that was also Dutch. There is a period following the Black Death from which little to no record exists of Jews in lowlander territories such as Brabant. There, it is not until 1368 when we again hear mention of Jewish communities, but again... It is with the despair of prejudice and violence. Following their demise during the Black Death, in the 1370s Jews once again came to live in Helders. Between 1377 and 1397, various Jews were given what is referred to as a Jew pass, allowing them to live in towns in Helders, but with limitations on things like 
the amount of interest they could charge and also what avenues were and were not open to them should they have charges brought against them by a Christian. By the early 1400s, the tendency of the Dukes of Helders was a liberalism towards Jewish settlement there, and policies continued in such a vein. Holland and Zeeland, you will notice, have not really been mentioned in all of this. Primarily, there seems to have been very little Jewish presence there in this century, and the role of money lending was filled, as we mentioned, by the Lombards. Where Jews are mentioned in the historical record is almost always in documentation of their conversion to Christianity, for which there could be incentives. To quote MJ Spate again, quote, For instance, the Count gave some money to two Jewish women who had been converted. Four years later, a Jewish man and woman were baptized in the Chrotekerk in The Hague, in the presence of Duke Albrecht. For the occasion, they were dressed in green robes presented to them by the Duke. After the ceremony, they were issued with a second set of garments. End quote. This demonstrates how highly the conversion of people to Christianity was valued, that the Duke himself would give money and be present for the baptism of merely two people. The 14th century, eh? What a crazy and ridiculous time. There would have been astonishment amongst those who had survived the plague, the pogroms, or both, as well as an acute awareness now of how suddenly death could come. All over the lowlands and much of Europe, motifs began to appear in architecture, art, and literature that showed or described images of death in paintings often behind the subject's shoulder, ever lurking. The other major effect of this apocalyptic era was that half of the people populating various roles within the feudal social structure had disappeared. There were now far fewer landowners and a lot of empty land, but also far fewer workers. Opportunities then arose for people willing to make the most of it. The workers remaining became in high demand and so they could push for higher wages and rights. Jews from here on in would also remain constantly present in various lowlander territories, most prominently for the moment in Helders, into the 15th century. However, we don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves in our general chronology, and so we will leave it here for now. What is important, and why we wanted to dedicate an episode to the especially tragic lot of Jews in this awful period, is to highlight the fact that there was not a homogeneity of population in these times, which can often become a default perspective on societies in the Middle Ages. Across the lowlands, as we move into the 15th and 16th centuries, things are going to accelerate towards a ludicrous speed of development. Vast changes in population, governance, economics, industry, and trade are going to come crashing through in the way that the North Sea was wont to do. Throughout it all, the Jewish presence in the lowlands is going to have a huge impact on these developments, to the extent that within a few hundred years, the Netherlands would become the most tolerant and liberal place for Jews, arguably in the world. The period we have covered today shows that this was not always the case, and that prior to this, the lowlands was not an exception to the extreme trials and hardships that everybody, but particularly the Jews, had to endure in the 13th and 14th centuries.
Thanks for listening to History of the Netherlands. You can get detailed show notes at our website, historyofthenetherlands.com. From there, you'll be able to find other podcasts and projects that we've created. This is a production of Republic of Amsterdam Radio. We want to give a massive shout out to Stephen Fienemann. We don't know if you're Dutch or not, but a rough translation of your name would be Pete Man. Pete, as in our very favorite thing, Sphagnum. So thank you, Stephen, the Sphagnum Magnum, for supporting us on Patreon at a one euro an episode level. That means you are hearing this before everybody else and without ads. Hoorah! For everybody else, if you want us to pick a pithy nickname for you and to hear our podcast without ads, you can be like Steve and go to patreon.com slash history of the Netherlands. Also, a thanks to Alan Coleman, who has written into us with some very kind words of support. Cheers, Alan. We are stoked to be a random and unexpected part of your extracurricular integration efforts into Dutch society. Alan wrote to us to say that he was listening to Free and Fearless, the story of the first parole trial, which, for those of you who don't know, is a special three-part series that we made last year about the underground press in Nazi-occupied Amsterdam. You can find it at our website, republicofamsterdamradio.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.